Greetings and welcome to another Different Church Podcast. My name is Jarrett, and I hope you are having an awesome day. I'm recording this intro at exactly 10.10 p.m. on Sunday night. I'm excited to get this done and out into the world so that you all can hear it uh, bright and early on Monday morning. Uh, It feels good to, you know, check things off the to-do list. Let that be a lesson for all of us this week. If you got something that you know you got to do, as the uh, great theologian Larry the Cable Guy would say, get her done. <laughs> It'll make you feel good. All right. I just want to say thank you so much for listening to this. Um, thanks to everyone who has attended in person or watched a live stream. Um, you all are incredible. Uh, I am privileged to every other week get up on stage to do the welcome and being able to look out at the faces and see everyone who is there to kind of support what we're doing and because they believe in what we're doing it's just the best and i've seen the podcast numbers you know what let's do an experiment right now in real time forgive me if this drags for a second because i'm recording and i'm working on my computer at the same time so it might be kind of slow i just i'm curious how many um podcast listens we have so i'm going to anchor.fm if you want to uh post a podcast i definitely recommend anchor it's free for podcasts hosting and distribution and it puts it pretty much everywhere <clears throat> so it's unsponsored but if it was sponsored use anchor all right since we have started our podcast we officially have eleven thousand seven hundred and seventy four plays and that is insane and i just want to say thank you so much to everyone who has listened you freaking rock Okay, so this week uh, we are still talking about Jonah. This is a little four-week series that we're doing, so this is the third week. Um, I love it. I really love um, the types of things that Hannah chooses to talk about from stage, uh, whether it's mental health or uh, social justice or nerdy Bible stuff. I just <clears throat> I wish that more churches talked about those things. I mean, that's that's why we started different in the first place, I guess. You know, there's plenty of churches in the world and the world doesn't need another church but the world needs a different church so you're getting four weeks of jonah from a progressive perspective and i hope you love it as much as i do um don't really have too many announcements for you um our small groups are going strong but you can still join if you would like uh just go to diff.church to sign up for one of those we've got tampa saint pete and a virtual group and we would love to see you at one of those Uh, Okay, thanks again for listening, and uh, Hannah, what are we talking about? We're still talking about Jonah, because Jonah's my favorite, and guess what? Next week, also talking about Jonah, but then I'll stop. We won't talk about Jonah until, like, December. I'll give you a break. We talked about Jonah running away from God and this incredible, intense storm that caused Jonah to be yeeted into the sea, and this morning, we are going to follow his pathway down and then back up, so it won't all be depressing. Or will it? (laughs) Okay, Jonah has a prayer in chapter two. This is where we're going to start. This is Jonah's words. This is after he gets tossed, okay? Overboard, sad Jonah, sinking. This is what he says. In distress, I called out to Yahweh, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called out for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and your breakers swept over me. And I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. 
Ugh. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, and the earth barred me in forever. I should tell you something about me that the most disturbing part of that passage to me is the seaweed. We go to the, <laughs> I don't like to go to Fort DeSoto because seaweed. Gross. Slimy, can't handle it. Okay, this is the story, it seems, of someone drowning. Yes? But not just of someone drowning. Did you say woohoo? <laughs> woohoo, someone's drowning. <laughs> so it's not just Jonah being like, oh, I'm sinking and God help me. And then just at the last second before he's about to die, he gets gulped by a fish sent by God. This is a story that calls back to Genesis in the opposite direction. So Genesis, at the beginning, is a story of creation. Jonah is a story of uncreation. So when we think of the people of the ancient Near East, so that's like the Middle East as we know it now, um, just thousands of years ago, their understanding of the universe and the world was nothing like ours. I know this will come as a great surprise to you. There was no concept of a round earth, okay? Their concept of the universe was like a dome, like a, like a snow globe. So you have a flat land at the bottom, the earth. It's this platform held up by pillars of the earth. Other, another way to say this is roots of the mountains. So the bottom of the mountains are the anchor for this platform. And then above them is a dome, just like a snow globe. And the mountains also hold up the dome. And up above this dome and below the earth is something called the deep, which is water untamed chaos. So heaven is up here above the dome. The realm of the dead is below the earth. And this is obviously scientifically accurate. <laughs> no, it's not. Of course it's not. Why would we expect this to be a scientifically accurate view of the universe when we ourselves in 2022 have very only scratched the surface of scientific accuracy? We're like, yes, we know about the world and we know that it's round and we know about gravity and then science was like, and also black holes. And we're like, what? <laughs> so there's literally so many things we don't even know that we don't even know that we don't know. So we've barely scratched the surface. And Jonah's sinking. So whenever you're thinking of Jonah, right, don't think of him sinking into the center of the earth, even though it says the center of the earth. He is sinking below the platform of the earth into the untamed chaos, the ocean beneath it. And... This is like a very big deal to ancient people. In ancient literature, if you read it, like the water is a very threatening thing because you can't tame it and you will drown. Like sailors were not rough and tumble people for nothing. So especially the Israelites did not really like the water. They were not a seafaring people. And if in the Old Testament you find them fighting with the Philistines all the time, the Philistines were a seafaring people and the Israelites are constantly picking on them for it, even though the Philistines had better boats, better military and frequently won the wars. Now, we see the undoing of creation in Genesis 7. If you recall our series we did on Genesis last year, it's on the podcast, you can check it out. You will remember that it does not say God created the world out of nothing. It's very clear that in the beginning there was some kind of water. The idea that God created out of nothing is more Greek philosophy than biblical storytelling. I'm not saying either of them is correct. I'm just saying if you actually read Genesis, it says that there is something, some chaotic water that God brings order to. There is unorder, disorder, and God orders it. There is chaos, and God makes everything habitable for humans. For creation to emerge, God has to hold back the deep, hold back the water, just like when the Israelites cross the Red Sea. God has to hold back the water. 
And so when the flood narrative comes, it is a literal undoing of creation. Humanity is no longer protected. God is no longer holding back the chaos so that humanity can live in this ordered environment. So when Jonah says in 2.5, the deep surrounds me, it's not he's just literally dying in the ocean. He is figuratively being undone. He is heading to a place where creation is undone. And Jonah falls and falls and falls, and he's nearing the realm of the dead, and he's moving further away from God in the ancient mind. The, the lower you get, the further you are away from God, because where does God live? Above the dome, right? And it's not just a physical descent, it's a spiritual descent. And it's a metaphor that runs through the whole book, beginning in chapter one. Jonah starts running away, right? Where can you go to run away from God? If God is in heaven, you have to go down, right? But if God is the creator of everything, to get away from God, you have to go outside of creation. So Jonah gets all the way down to the roots of the mountains, and the earth bars him out of creation forever. To go below the mountains that are holding up this dome is to fall outside of created land and territory. It is to fall outside the realm where humans are protected and everything is orderly. He is now trapped in the realm of the dead, or as Hebrew calls it, Sheol. What's fascinating is we're just like, yes, yes, Jonah doesn't like what God told him to do, and he like runs away. No, this starts at the beginning. So God, the first words in Jonah are, the word of Yahweh came to Jonah, and he said, get up and go to Nineveh. And Jonah does not get up, he goes down. He goes down to Joppa to get a boat. He goes down to get on the boat. He, once he's on the boat, he goes down below deck. And then he falls down into a deep sleep. And then when he gets to the surface of the boat and then the water is crazy and there's a hurricane going on, he gets tossed overboard and he goes down into the water. And then it says he goes down beneath the boat. And then he goes down even further still into the heart of the sea and then into the heart of the earth and then below the roots of the mountains. He's been going down since verse 2. This is kind of an uh, over-the-top rock bottom. Like, you literally cannot get lower than Jonah. You went below the earth. <laughs> he is beyond hope, right? So his dream of running away from Yahweh is now his nightmare because he actually is existing in a space where creation is no longer there. He is existing in a space of uncreation, and in the ancient mind, you're gone. Like once you get to the realm of the dead, you stay there. There's no hope for you. There's no turning back. You stuck. We feel how heavy that is, right? Which makes the next verse more powerful because it starts with that one little word, but. But you, Yahweh, brought my life up from the pit. This is the first time you see the word up since the beginning. God says, get up. Jonah says, no, thank you. And he goes down. He quite literally spirals. <laughs> um, and he gets all the way down to where you cannot go down anymore. And then God says, up. And God sends a fish to rescue him. And then commands the fish after three days and three nights, vomit him up on dry land, which I'm sure was delightful. And Jonah is reborn. Recreated. The Hebrew word for this is yabasha, this dry land that he's vomited out on. It is the same word in Genesis when God says, let there be dry land. 
Jonah is the new creation. He's gone from running away from God to reaching the place of unending chaos and uncreation. And finally, he, be, he becomes born again. And then he uses the same words as the sailors in the previous chapter when they make their vows and promises. And he uses the same words and makes his vows and promises. And then God says, again, in chapter one, it says, now the word of Yahweh came to Jonah. He said, get up, go to Nineveh. And then in chapter two, or Jonah three, it says, now Jonah's finally on dry land. He stopped going down. It says, now the word of Yahweh came to Jonah and said, get up and go to Nineveh. And we can be pleasantly surprised when Jonah actually does what he's told. Instead of running away like a toddler, being like, I'm not doing that. The story starts over. Like Jonah gets a literal mirror copy of the second chance. God's like, okay, we did this whole thing. <laughs> You've died in more ways than one. And I've saved you. And now will you please just do what I asked you to do in the first place? And one difference, though, there's a difference if you're paying attention. In chapter one, it says, go preach against Nineveh. But in chapter three, it says, go tell them the message I will give you. Something has shifted. And then it says, Nineveh was a very large city and took three days to get across it. This is the second time we're referencing three days in Jonah, okay? Jonah had a journey of three days back from the realm of the dead. And as we discussed last week, in ancient culture, in ancient theology, it was understood to have taken three days and three nights to get to or from the realm of the dead. You also see this, who is in the heart of the earth for three days? Jesus, three days and three nights. So Jonah had a journey of three days to get back into ordered creation, from the chaos that he was in. And now Nineveh is going to take three days to cross, except it absolutely did not. <laughs> there is no chance historically that that is even remotely accurate. There is not a single city in the ancient world that it would have taken three days to walk across. Like you can walk a fair amount in one day. Even a normal person, like you can go far. This, Nineveh was not that big. Not even the capital city of Assyria was that big. And even if you want to like update the map a little bit, like Rome was not that big. I don't even think St. Pete is that big. Okay, it does not take you three days to walk across. This is why details matter, right? Because the fish dove through the scary and chaotic waters to be Yahweh's vehicle for Jonah's salvation. It takes three days. And Jonah's turn to return the favor. He is to go into the chaos, the uncreation of Nineveh, a type of death for the ancient Israelites, and be Yahweh's vehicle for Nineveh's salvation. But wait, Nineveh's salvation, weren't we just told in chapter one that he was to preach destruction to them? Why would Nineveh be chaos? Why are we comparing Nineveh to this nonsense below the earth that God had to somehow create order in? The very mention of Nineveh to the ancient Israelites, and honestly, any people who existed at that time would have made them have like a small panic attack. It would bring up hundreds of years of trauma for them. The Assyrian Empire was a brutal force in the ancient world. For over 300 years, they were on top. They were top dog. And they were known in the known world for being violent, not just violent, impossibly cruel. Like, and I don't want to make you like lose your lunch. So I'm going to give you like a teeny tiny taste of the things they were known for. They specialized in horrors such as skinning people, impaling people, burying people up to their necks and leaving them to die. 
Um, cutting off limbs, gouging out eyes, and crucifixion. They invented it. And whether they did all of these things all the time or not, they were known worldwide in the ancient world for doing this to people. By the time Jonah was written, <laughs> my watch just said, I found this on the web, and it says something about a sundial and figures in ancient history. <laughs> Listen, unless it's God, we're not interested. <laughs> by the time Jonah was written, the Assyrian Empire had fallen. They'd been taken over by the Babylonian Empire. However, in the collective memory of Israel, this was a very dark time in their life. In the collective memory of the world, this was a dark time when the Assyrians were in control. It is why this tale of redemption, this tale of preaching salvation to the Ninevites, it's not just like scandalous, not just for Jonah, but for people reading the story. What's even more perplexing is how a book about the salvation of Assyrians ended up in the Bible. I want you to really think about this. There's a guy named David Blower who said this about Jonah. And he said, the fact that some Jewish scribe decided to write down the story of God's compassion for a people who had conquered Israel and subjected them to horrors and atrocities is remarkable. That's miracle number one. Someone was like, I think we should care about these people. The fact that the book was not then immediately rejected, banned, burned by moderate, sensible people who were like, this is distasteful. You cannot be sympathetic toward people who literally murdered our ancestors is unexplainable. That's miracle number two. But then the fact that the book was then selected to be canonized as a holy writing in the Hebrew scriptures and has endured to this day is, how do you explain that? Having Jonah in our Bible is even more interesting if you just flip over a few pages to the book of Nahum, a book dedicated entirely to God's judgment of Nineveh for their oppression and cruelty. Nahum begins like this. This is what it says. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the images and idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. That's more what we would expect, right? This, this is on brand. <laughs> this is more what we would expect from a people decimated by this oppressive empire, right? And yet our Bible is full of surprises. This is one of the reasons I love it so much. Next to each other, separated by a few pages, we have a book declaring that the fall of Assyria is a right and just act of God. And another book declaring that God desires mercy and justice and repentance which I think speaks to the nature of the Bible as a conversation, as opposed to a rule book. It is a tradition with complex voices weighing against each other. Back to Jonah. Jonah gets one day into his whopping three-day journey across Nineveh, preaches a very exciting five-word sermon that says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Yes, I know that's more than five words, but in the Hebrew, it's five words. Literally, 40 more days, Nineveh will be overthrown. And that sounds clear, right? No. <laughs> we should expect double meanings in Jonah. The word that we translate overthrown here, it can mean overthrown or it can mean changed. Is Nineveh going to be destroyed or will it be changed? Is this a warning of what will happen if they don't change their ways? Or is it a prediction that they will change their ways? 
The next sentence says the Ninevites believe God, which, I mean, honestly, if someone came into your town, like if someone walked into St. Pete and somehow went viral on the internet and we all saw it and was like, 40 more days and St. Pete's going to be overthrown, we would all be like, okay, <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> have you met our military? No, thank you. Like, we have McDill, it's right there. Like, we would just be like, this is an idiot. Like, what a crazy person to say this thing. And no, um, the Ninevites are just blown away by this five-word sermon. They are so <laughs> repentant. They are so overwhelmed with the fact that this prophet said five words to them that they're like, okay, okay, okay. It says, the next sentence says, the Ninevites believed God. And the king says, who knows? God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger when we will not perish. And then the narrator says, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he did not bring upon them the destruction they had threatened. We know this, right? In fact, as soon as Jonah utters the sermon, the whole city is like, oh no. Organize. And they do. From the king down to the animals, they declare a fast. Not just a food fast, no water. May I remind you, they're in the desert. No one gets to eat or drink. Everyone gets to wear sackcloth, which is basically the worst kind of cloth. It's very itchy. And they sit in the dirt to show how sorry they are. Now, this is textbook ancient repentance. Like, if you are going to be sorry as an ancient person, that is what you do. You sit in scratchy clothes, and you sit in the dirt, and you don't eat to show God that you really mean it. The king decrees it. Even the king sits in the dirt. And he's like, by the decree of the king, don't let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. For how long? Doesn't say. Let them call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways. Who knows? God may relent. This really raises a question, I think, of what it means to be a prophet and the nature of prophecy, right? Because does a prophet preach doom? Look, we're used to prophets preaching doom, I think. It's like 90% of the prophecies in the Old Testament are like, you're going to get it. You better shape up. You're going to get it. And, you know, even if you shape up, you're probably still going to get it. And some of it's directed at other people, and some of it's directed at the Israelites, which is, that's depressing. It would be like if someone came in here, if Peter was like, okay, I have a word from the Lord. Different church. <laughs> you, you're going to get it. Like, this place is going to be burned to the ground. Like, except for a whole country. This is the prophecy. Does a prophet preach doom or does a prophet preach hope? Does a prophet predict the future? That's what typically we think of. Or does a prophet illuminate the present and give us a warning as to what might happen if things don't change? And honestly, sometimes I think we're like, prophecy has to be true. God said it and I believe it, etc. <laughs> I hate that line, can you tell? <laughs> but what if... The idea is, here's the natural consequences of your actions. And we do not like being told about those, do we? We're like, well, if you speed, you're probably going to get a ticket. And you might get in an accident. It might really hurt someone. This is like a benign example. And we're like, yeah, whatever. I'm going to drive 68 and a 40. We, I mean, we don't actively say that, but we act like that. We're like, oh, whatever, it's only a problem if you get caught, right? What? Nobody likes being told what to do, but if a prophet says something and it doesn't come true, is the prophet preaching the truth? This is a conundrum. 
right? Because Jonah goes and preaches destruction and then Nineveh does not get destroyed. So was he preaching the truth? Did, how likely is it that you think Jonah would feel betrayed by the fact that God told him to go preach destruction when he already knows that God's not gonna destroy everyone? Is he a false prophet? Also relevant to this line of thinking is repentance, right? Because Jonah preaches a tiny sermon and then the whole city is convinced miraculously to believe in God, but they actually like model textbook repentance. They do sackcloth and fasting and sitting in the dust. And it's not this like spontaneous movement of a couple people. It's like a top mandated thing down to every person and animal. And Jonah, the book of Jonah affirms that whatever it is is genuine. They all mean it. Even the animals mean it. I don't know what that means, but somehow the animals mean it too. And it says, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, God did not bring destruction on the city. Y'all can come back up here. It seems like the fulfillment of Jonah's ambiguous prophecy actually depends on the hearers. Will they be overthrown? Or will they be changed? I think the king says a really interesting phrase in chapter 3, verse 9. He says, who knows? Maybe God will turn from God's wrath and not do this. That is so interesting to me because I think, particularly in the evangelical, like, name it and claim it prosperity gospel that many of us were subjected to (laughs) as a child and, like, many of us are still being subjected to, it's a very transactional relationship. If I do this for God, then God did this for me. If I say I'm sorry, then God has to forgive me. If I live right, whatever that means, then I will be blessed somehow, monetarily. And this says, who knows? Like, when you apologize to someone and you really mean it, you hope that they'll forgive you, right? but there's always the option that they won't. But a sincere apology is not based on the other person forgiving you. It's based on you saying in your heart, I really have done something harmful and I need to repent. I need to apologize. And repent is like this big church word. We're like, oh, repent. And we think of hell. No, repent actually means, if you read the, like, the context of this word, it means to just turn the other direction. It means you were going this way and now you are going this way. It means you changed course. You were harming people before or yourself and now you are not. And you recognize the impact that your decisions and your actions have had and you decide not to do that anymore. How do you know repentance is genuine? When you're now walking a different path and the Ninevites say, They don't believe they can manipulate God somehow through their actions. They're not like, we're doing this so we don't get destroyed. They're like, we're doing this because we we realize what we have done. We realize how harmful we have been and we're truly sorry for it. And the only way we know how to make amends for it is to do this textbook-like thing to show that we're sorry, which is to fast and sit in the dust. It's not a divine equation. They don't know if they go through the witch rule, if they'll be destroyed or not. They say, who knows? The king says, who knows? Maybe God will relent or maybe it's too late. But either way, we are on a new path. 
And the Ninevites, interestingly, have a, the same attitude as the sailors in chapter one. When they wake up Jonah, how can you sleep? How can you sleep through this storm? Get up and call on your God. Who knows? Maybe God will relent and take notice of us so we don't perish. Unspoken addendum, or maybe God won't. Maybe you won't be forgiven. Now, I know this is like a difficult concept, especially for our evangelical leaning people such as myself, where you're like, well, God has to forgive you. And I agree. I don't agree that God has to. I agree that God wants to, which is different, right? But the king says, who knows? No one knows what God's going to do. Maybe we'll live. Maybe we won't. Maybe we'll be overthrown. Maybe we'll be changed. Maybe Jonah spoke the truth when Jonah was speaking about destruction. Or maybe, maybe. But either way, we are going to follow a new path. And this is where repentance becomes a problem. I said this in small group, I think two weeks in a row so far, because we talk about grace, and we like the idea of the Ninevites getting mercy, right? Because we want some. If grace is not at least a little bit offensive, then it's not grace. This is the question. If is someone's repentance even genuine, even if they really mean it, even if they really are on a new path now, is it enough to erase generations of violence? Is mercy in the face of this just? I think this doesn't have anything to do with our current state in America, does it? We definitely, as a country, have nothing to apologize for. I can say this because I'm a white person. I definitely have nothing in my history that I should feel sorry for, right? And on the other hand, all my family is Jewish. So I kind of hold both worlds. I have people who, many, more than I can count, did not survive World War II, were trapped in extermination camps that have my family name. Is it just to forgive those people that caused that. Is mercy offensive? Is grace offensive? This is, a, this is a difficult and existential question and one that Jonah has a deep problem with. And we will talk about that next week because I don't want to keep you until, you know, forever. Also, I don't want to overload your brain with existential crises on a Sunday morning. <laughs> Jonah actually argues with God about this in the next chapter because God's like, shouldn't I care about these people? And Jonah's like, no, you shouldn't. <laughs> and then God's like, well, you care about this stupid plant that you've only known for one day, Jonah. And Jonah's like, that's different. And God's like, is it? And then we're just left with nothing. We have no answer to the question. So the question for us to wrestle with this week is what does mercy look like? What does justice look like? Especially if you call yourself a person of faith, can you actually forgive? generations of violence and trauma even in your own history can you be forgiven obviously I think the answer is yes but that doesn't make it easy it makes it hard but sometimes things in life are hard 
Just because it's hard doesn't mean it's not worth doing. <laughs>